Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we look at the mythic background of the creative life to discover both its challenges and its rewards. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Whenever the creative force predominates, life is ruled and shaped by the unconscious rather than by the conscious will. And the ego is swept along on an underground current, becoming nothing more than a helpless observer of events. The progress of the work becomes the poet's fate and determines his psychology. It is not Goethe that creates Faust, but Faust that creates Goethe. There's a common misconception that people have when they take on any kind of inner work, whether that takes the form of psychotherapy, spiritual practice, or some artistic or creative endeavor. We tend to think that if it's something that we want to do, if it's something that we feel called to do, that we will naturally and easily move toward it. We'll make time for it, be enthusiastic about it, and we will throw ourselves into it in a disciplined way without looking back. So it can be particularly confusing to people who have long harbored a creative dream, who have wished that they had the time or the opportunity or the resources to finally begin it, to discover that when all the perceived barriers have at last fallen away, they still can't seem to summon up any significant action toward the realization of that dream. Enthusiasm seems to turn into apathy, discipline into procrastination, and hope into disappointment. In the face of this experience, these people will often conclude that either there is something wrong with them, or the creative call that they heard was merely an illusion. And it's in circumstances such as these that it can be helpful to have a knowledge and understanding of mythological and symbolic material. As I said last time in episode 13 of this second season, why do we need a symbolic life? Myths tell us important truths 
about our relationship with life and the cosmos. A symbolic understanding, therefore, can help us to differentiate between an issue that is personal in nature and one that is archetypal, that is, a typical human situation. It can help us answer the question, is this my problem or is this a human problem? And in this way, we can set our expectations of ourselves and the situation we are in more accurately. Mythic understanding can relieve us of any naive belief, for instance, in the ego's power for self-determination and can help us to take up a realistic attitude to the complexity of our psychological existence. One mythological motif that has particular relevance to the challenges of creative work is that of the threshold guardian. As described by Joseph Campbell in his explication of the hero's journey in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. At the start of the journey, as the myths and stories of all cultures tell us, the hero who has responded to the call to leave the safety of the known world of home, family, and peers comes to the border between that familiar land and the beckoning but unfamiliar world of adventure. Typically, at this border, stands a frightening guardian, ready to turn away anyone who is unworthy. Such custodians, Campbell writes, stand for the limits of the hero's present sphere or life horizon. Beyond them is darkness, the unknown, and danger. This is the first test. Because what lies ahead is a road of trials, a journey that will require the hero to face old fears and to discover new strengths. If one is to set out on this road, he or she must do so in full consciousness of the costs it will exact. This is the archetypal dynamic that gets constellated whenever we intend toward the creative life. Whether we know it or not, at that moment we are staring across a boundary at a darkened landscape populated, as Campbell says, with deceitful and dangerous presences. And so it is that as we set out on this path, the first thing we're likely to experience is fear. At the very least, we will have to confront our doubts. Do I have what it takes? We may ask ourselves. Am I really up for this? Even before we take the first step, we may be tempted to turn back. The writer Stephen Pressfield has his own name for this threshold guardian. He calls it resistance a word he always writes with a capital R, as if to indicate its mythological status as a kind of quasi-cosmic force that confronts us whenever we set out to do creative work. 
Resistance, Pressfield writes in his book, The War of Art, is like an energy field radiating from a work in potential. It's a repelling force. It's negative. Its aim, he goes on, is to shove us away, distract us, prevent us from doing our work. And what activates this negative work and life-denying force, he suggests, is any act that rejects immediate gratification in favor of long-term growth, health, or integrity. Or, expressed another way, any act that derives from our higher nature instead of our lower. The power of resistance, as Pressfield imagines it, grows in direct proportion to the importance that whatever it is we are pursuing holds for our personal growth and development. Pressfield's notion of resistance is an idea born of a writer's intuition and hard-won experience. It also turns out to be consistent with the symbolism found in the mythological tradition, as well as with the insights of Jungian psychology. In whatever form the threshold guardian may take, we encounter it, of course, because we have come to a threshold. For Pressfield, the threshold marks the move from one's lower nature to one's higher nature. And this would correspond in Jungian thought to a recentering of one's experience from the ego to the self, which we can understand as a kind of shift in priorities from what we want out of life to what life wants out of us, to borrow a phrase from the Jungian analyst D. Stevenson Bond. We can also understand this threshold as the border between the conscious mind and the unconscious. Consciousness, according to Marie-Louise von Franz, tends to solidify. It's a consolidation of what we know and therefore can be used in a directed, intentional way. However, in order to function efficiently, it usually excludes the unknown, the non-rational, and the unfamiliar, even unwanted aspects of the psyche. These are the components, so to speak, of the unconscious, and they are the elements necessary to any truly creative activity. Creativity, then, requires consciousness to be informed and infused by the vitality of the unconscious. And this means something like a breaking up of its too solid consolidation, such that a door is opened, as von Franz writes, for the influx of new creative contents. And the phrase that she uses for this breaking up, or perhaps phrased more accurately, softening up of consciousness, is abaissement du niveau mental. This phrase, which Jung borrowed from the French psychologist Pierre Janet, means 
a lowering of the mental level. And it's something of a paradox inherent in inner work that the creative process, whose goal is the raising of consciousness on either a personal or a collective level, begins with a lowering of consciousness. The old must be relinquished to make room for the new. This is the payment demanded of us at the threshold of creation. Von Franz describes how this dynamic manifested in Jung's own life at the time when he was working on his famous book, Answer to Job. She writes, It was not by chance that Dr. Jung, for instance, wrote Answer to Job, the book which he thought of as his best, while in bed with quite a high temperature. When he had finished the manuscript, he got up and was all right again. But it needed this kind of abaissement du niveau mental to bring out this creative work. It's highly emotional and needed such an illness to undo his normally strongly functioning consciousness. And this need for the breaking up of consciousness is why Jung states in the opening quote, whenever the creative force predominates, life is ruled and shaped by the unconscious rather than by the conscious will. And the ego is swept along on an underground current, becoming nothing more than a helpless observer of events. No wonder the threshold guardian of resistance quickly rears its head. The ego, so used to feeling in control, does not want to go through the experience of feeling like a helpless observer of events. The dynamics of creation and creativity are given symbolic expression in the many creation myths that are found throughout the cultures and traditions of the world. This is a subject explored extensively by Marie-Louise von Franz in her book on creation myths. She notes that one of the key themes that appears in several of the world's creation stories is that of the first being, the solitary god who is moved by either fear or loneliness, and sometimes both, to create the world and all that exists. Now we've already seen that fear is often the first emotion that arises on the creative journey. Some part of ourselves senses the possibility of the encounter with the unconscious and the loosening effect that it has on our conscious selves. It's that deep, irrational fear, writes von Franz, which comes up when one is alone and which we all experience if suddenly left in complete stillness and loneliness when most people get terrified without knowing why. Usually and reflexively, we do whatever we can to avoid such a loneliness and the fear that attends it. We fill our lives with tasks, with talk, 
with all sorts of distractions to keep this disorienting experience at bay. But if we take the symbolic language of myths seriously, it is just these conditions that are conducive to creation. Indeed, it is a fundamental technique in all religious traditions to seek contact with the creative powers of life through isolation and solitude. Still, one should not underestimate the disquiet such an encounter can evoke. The fear of the Lord, as the psalmist declares, is the beginning of wisdom. But it is not just the coming up of the unconscious that makes us fear loneliness. A creative life can also make us feel separate and isolated from the everyday world around us. To stand alone is to stand apart. And as Susan Cain notes in her book on the experience of introversion titled Quiet, such a stance can trigger a phenomenon that has been called the pain of independence, which is marked by an activation of the amygdala, that area of the brain associated with the fight or flight response. And this fear and discomfort of our separateness may, in fact, be well justified. Separateness breeds suspicion. As Jung states, to develop one's own personality is indeed an unpopular undertaking, a deviation that is highly uncongenial to the herd. So here's a poem that expresses well this tension between the social world and the hard-to-understand deviation that is the creative personality. It's a poem by David Wagner, and it's called Neighbors. And it goes like this. My neighbor tells me I'm the worst, the rudest person he's ever met. He's waved. His wife has waved at me. They've said hello there from their own yard through waving branches squarely over the fence my way. His face, whose name I hurriedly remember, is furious across our year-old border at not being waved at, livid, pinching itself shut. I tell him, no, that can't be me. It isn't like me at all to be snobbish, to dream up grudges like a neighbor's keeper. Sometimes I have problems with focusing tunnel vision. My outer ears have hard-of-hearing sinuses or words to that tongue-tied effect. I'm afraid to tell him I'm trying hard to listen to other voices in my private head, not necessarily including his. To say I'm too wrapped up in my own thoughts for fear he'll challenge me to name one. I can't tell him I see things like trees 
instead of his face, that I hear birds instead of his wife, because I imagine myself belonging among those stranger neighbors. His eyes come open narrowly. His mouth returns in a manner of speaking reluctantly. Well, maybe he misjudged me, turning away to mull me over. Later that evening, he and his wife ride slowly by on bikes, maneuvering close to where I've wandered to be with a young maple, waving, crying out loud, Hello there! making their good feelings perfectly clear at last to the handicapped. There is a kind of feel-good psychology that is often preached that makes it seem like creativity is synonymous with happiness. But those who have spent time in what Mary Oliver calls the wilderness of creation know that it is much more complex than that. The creative instinct, says Jung, has its own imperative. We should not be deceived into thinking that it is simply a tool for us to use at our own discretion. There are times, rather, when it makes use of us. And for those who happen to be particularly sensitive to its demands, Jung writes that the creative urge is often so imperious that it battens on their humanity and yokes everything to the service of the work, even at the cost of health and ordinary human happiness. Now, for most of us, perhaps, this may sound a bit over the top. We may not be one of those people who are possessed by the spirit of creativity to the point where we neglect our health. Still, even if we take Jung's statement as a description of an extreme case, it's important to acknowledge that it does describe some quality of the territory toward which we venture in any act of creation. And even if we do not consider ourselves creative as such, it is a certainty that each of us at some point will come up against our own horizons. We will find ourselves in a borderland where the old must pass away and the new must be discovered. Each of us at some point in other words, will confront our own threshold of creation. And so it's important that we know what to expect when we find ourselves in this territory. Otherwise, we might be tempted to turn back at the first sign of difficulty, assuming that there is something wrong with us or that we have been deceived by the call of creativity. This is the key takeaway, because the stakes at times like these are actually quite high. They involve nothing less than who we are and who we might become. As the poet David White puts it, 
The burden of creativity is the burden of identity. If our expectation is that we have to feel good or happy or whole before we can be creative, then we may never start. Rather, we must prepare our hearts and minds to stare down the guardians who set themselves in our path and would keep us from doing the work that grows our soul. But here's the thing. On the other side of the threshold, teaches Joseph Campbell, the guardian often becomes the giver of gifts. The hero of the myth who stays the course is granted some boon, a special power, a magical object, wisdom, on which the success of the rest of the journey will depend. Translated into practical terms, this means that if we are able, despite all obstacles within and without, to summon up the courage to create, when we are able to approach our work in the right spirit, then we give rise to the conditions for something like happiness and wholeness to follow. Would it be too simple, then, in the face of the self-doubt, the fear, and the loneliness of the creative path, to just say, keep going? Maybe. But only if we make the mistake of confusing simple with easy. It's not easy, but it is necessary to find in ourselves the will to keep going, because it is only by crossing the threshold that we can discover and retrieve that which, as Jung says, makes it possible for us to find our way back to the deepest springs of life. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.